This is a presentation of the Pitch Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Streetwise Podcast. I am your host, Brock Wilbur, and the editor-in-chief of The Pitch. How is everybody doing out there? Uh, We are having a wonderful time at the pitch, putting the finishing touches on the September issue of the magazine. Uh, I'm having just a heck of a day. Uh, For a year and a half now, I've been looking forward to a September concert uh, festival thing over over a weekend in Chicago. I started having a pang of like, maybe that's not the best idea. Uh, back when Lollapalooza happened, uh, in the same park a couple of weekends ago and just saw how many people could fit in that place and was like, ah, perhaps that is not the right call. Uh, and today, uh, they announced that Nine Inch Nails has canceled their one North American show for the year, which was going to be on the night of my birthday. And they have replaced him with Morrissey, a man who is, if you know anything about Morrissey, not Nine Inch Nails, let's just say that. So uh, dealing with a small amount of disappointment today uh, as I become the Joker in my own life, just laughing at nothing everywhere around me. Um, got to see the latest Marvel movie last night. It was very fun. You will see it in a week. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, a thing that stuck out to it uh, that, uh, will not be a thing that anyone else takes away is that, uh, early in this action movie, the action movie star is doing some push-ups alone in his apartment as part of his morning routine. And I have been a bit laid up with a medical issue where I haven't been doing much walking lately and have felt very couch potato-y. And for the first time in my adult life, I saw somebody doing push-ups on a screen and became jealous uh, and, uh, even though I was not supposed to, came home and then, uh, this morning was doing push-ups, uh, a thing that I never liked ever, uh, and am not sure why I'm drawn to now, minus the fact that I was like, ah, I missed that. Not that I thought that I was going to start looking like him or fighting crime like him, just that I was like, oh, I can do that in my own space, bother nobody, it's pretty quiet, and, uh... I don't know, maybe that would feel good. It does not feel good. Every part of my upper body and parts of my feet hurt. I should not have done what I did. Uh, But I don't know. Maybe going to pursue push-ups. Maybe that's a new thing. I don't know. We're all just uh, looking for hobbies at this point. And if my hobby is uh, pushing against the earth because I wish to flee it, that would track. Uh, We have a wonderful show here uh, for you today. Uh, We're going to talk about a... uh, a Casey jazz guitarist a little later in the show. Uh, and we have Nick's music corner as per always, but first up here, uh, our friend Jason from stolen dress entertainment is reading Liz cooks. We live in a society, her first restaurant review in more than a year for us reviewing society, a nightclub slash restaurant slash many, many other things. Uh, and, uh, it's, it's just a delight for us to have award-winning food critic Liz Cook back writing about food. But even for Jason, he's thrilled to have Liz back because, as you'll hear, it's just as much fun to read her work out loud as it is to read it on the page. Jason, take it away. We live in a society. Choices over coherence challenge the Crossroads' latest night spot. By Liz Cook. 
It's been 16 months since I filed my last restaurant review. Back then, I had no idea what the city's dining scene would endure, or what it would look like when it came out on the other side. The other side is a moving target, but restaurant sales have been booming for months as diners unleashed their pent-up pandemic demand. It seemed like a good time to re-enter society and take stock. So I entered Society, the buzzy restaurant-meets-bar-meets-dance-club that opened in the former Crossroads home of the Jacobson this May. I started with the basics, with the two questions I ask myself about each spot I visit. What is this restaurant adding to the city? And what is this restaurant trying to be? I struggled for a long time to answer the first question. Eventually, I landed on extremely fast cocktails. I'm still working out the second one. I know what society says it's trying to be. Society says a lot of things. My interest in the restaurant was piqued by a press release that mocked Kansas City's boring wood-paneled steakhouses and played-out speakeasies, and positioned society as an art-forward alternative, hailed as one of the freshest concepts in a while. The quote was unattributed. I don't know who's doing the hailing, but I suspect the call is coming from inside the house. All of the restaurant's promotional copy is written from the perspective of a 15-year-old who just discovered negging. Society, the website promised, would offer the city something new. Society would be unlike the cramped, pretentious, dimly lit cocktail bars popular in the previous decade. Society would have glamour and lush opulence and would not validate parking in the nearby garages. Society would have massive screens, and some of those screens would be playing art. Finally, the website promised, an elevated entertainment concept in Kansas City. Finally. You can imagine my surprise when the fresh, elevated concept turned out to be truffle fries and chocolate lava cake in a neon-trimmed dining room that evoked a gadzooks in a suburban mall circa 1998. The restaurant is the unwieldy brainchild of the Trident Investment Group, the Overland Park-based restaurant group that also owns Westport Ale House, The Fall, and, before its April 2020 closure, Parkway Social Kitchen. For society, Trident has leaned into an eclectic vibe, starting with the restaurant's Ransom Note logo, a jaunty mix of serif and sands. Every square foot of society has an art, from the epoxy resin bar top striped like the solo jazz cup to the gold-painted support pole appended with branches to look like a tree. On the dance floor, I spied a large gilded cage for influencers to take photos in. As an objet d'art, it seemed a little on the nose. The dining room has been fully transformed from its Jacobson days. The walls are black, but coated in projector screens and enormous flat-screen televisions mounted in even more enormous beveled picture frames. All of those screens are displaying art, trademark, most of which is indistinguishable from an early aughts iTunes visualizer. Chef Juan Jimenez, who Trident brought over from Parkway's Social Kitchen, developed the restaurant's menu, which is a confused mix of pub sandwiches, American sushi, and top-dollar entrees. The starters are what Jimenez and his staff do best. I'm not usually excited about calamari, $14, but society's version was a fun grab bag of squid, banana pepper, and jalapeno rings. The breading on all three was crisp and light, and the lemon aioli was creamy and bright. The tater tots, $9, were similar to a version served at Parkway, less taut than large potato croquette, with crisp outsides, melty middles, and a decent kick from the molten ghost pepper cheese. Some of the other dishes are Parkway ports as well, though they're marginally less expensive than their predecessors. The caramelized prime rib sandwich, $20, tasted identical to the version I had at Parkway in 2018, flaws and all. The bread is still too soft, and the caramelized onion cream cheese is still too meek. But it's fine. It's upmarket Arby's. The burger, $16, would have been great were it not slathered in an aggressively sweet onion marmalade. 
The steak fries served alongside were crisp, puffy, and seasoned like potato wedges from a school cafeteria. I mean this with genuine reverence. The menu calls them truffle fries, and society's director of operations, Mike Holra, told me on a fact-checking call that the kitchen uses truffle oil in the preparation. If they do, it's in homeopathic quantities. I couldn't taste it, and truffle oil is not known for its subtlety. My advice is to drop truffle from the menu. The fries are great as is. The large format entrees were less successful. The pan-seared scallops, $32, were nicely crusted but overcooked, and the accompanying risotto was clumpy and choked with cheese. The apricot-glazed half-chicken, $21, was well-spiced with an herby crust and fragrant glaze, but the chicken skin was flabby, the breast meat was chalky, and the pasty mashed potatoes looked like they'd been doled out with an ice cream scoop. I kept asking myself, who is this menu for? At Parkway Social Kitchen, which had a mid-century dining room with Don Draper vibes, these entrees made a kind of sense. Here, they feel too heavy and out of step with the atmosphere. Does anyone really want to eat half a rotisserie chicken while DJ Ashton Martin bumps club music? Some of the lightest options here are the sushi rolls, most of which are either tempura or vegetarian. The rolls were also, on my first two visits, square. I assumed they had been formed in a mold, but Holra assured me all the sushi was hand-rolled. The kitchen's clearly still working out technique. The Crossroads roll, $16, looked pretty, draped with beef carpaccio and studded with crispy capers, but the roll itself was surprisingly bland. All I noticed was the neutral crunch of jicama. The dynamite roll, $14, at least tasted like something. Mostly like the sticky sweet hoisin and spicy mayo drizzled liberally, but elegantly on the plate. The version I tried was 80% rice, the filling a tiny porthole in a vast white cruise ship. It was also plated with tempura shrimp tails protruding from each end, like a kind of crustacean cat dog. I formed a new hypothesis. At Society, everything is a sandwich, for art reasons. How else to explain the chocolate lava cake, $10, which was both crowned with ice cream and swimming in a melted moat of it. Ostensibly, the moat was creme anglaise, but it was too thin to coat a spoon. The lava cake is the only dessert society doesn't make in-house, but the others aren't much better. The creme brulee, with seasonal berries, $12, turned out to be a single raspberry floating in a lake of soupy, unset custard. One nice thing about society is that it's easy to leave. Service on all three of my visits was swift, attentive, and friendly, and everything came out of the bar and the kitchen suspiciously fast. That's partly thanks to Blade Moore and Amanda Norwood Streeby, who collaborated on the cocktail menus at Society and the Scarlet Room next door. All of Society's cocktails are pre-mixed and served on tap, a choice that allows bartenders to better manage busy weekend crowds. The drinks look great on paper and in person, though most taste flatter and sweeter than their ingredients list would suggest. The White Peach High, $12, was a syrupy blend of Sauve Blanc and sake that promised yuzu and grapefruit, but only delivered peach. And the Oaxacan Smoke Show, $13, had a fun burnt sugar nose, but the mezcal and habanero were dulled by a deluge of sweetness. It was also garnished with a desiccated brown lime wedge. This is admittedly a fussy complaint, but with pre-made cocktails, the bar has time to inspect the fruit. A couple cocktails fared better with the on-tap treatment. The Oleander, $12, was well-balanced, adding lime, ginger, and hibiscus to a gin and vodka base. And the backhanded compliment, $12, patio only, was acid bright with pineapple and grapefruit. It was my favorite of the drinks I tried. Cocktail fans will have better luck in society's adjoining lounge, the Scarlet Room, where the lights are low, the music is lower, and the decor is, comparatively, understated. Crossing the threshold from society to Scarlet did not, as the website promised, usher me into a vibrant, intoxicating world of light, color, and opulence. But it did usher me into a red-toned room with a cheesy fake fireplace topped with cheesy fake candles topped with a cheesy flat screen playing early aughts screensavers. I would have loved all of that stuff if Trident didn't insist on taking it so seriously. 
The drinks here are made to order, and they're almost universally better than the ones on tap next door. They're also significantly more expensive. The WAP, wet-ass peach, $17, was summery and fresh with a luxe meringue-like foam. And the Tiki La, $17, sexed up the standard tiki sweetness with mezcal and a savory red pepper bite. Still, I'm not sure Kansas Cityans will thrill at paying Monarch Bar prices for Cheesecake Factory vibes. I kept thinking about the mocking copy on society's website. The thing those boring wood-paneled steakhouses and played-out speakeasies have is an identity. It might be predictable, but at least it's coherent. Society can't seem to decide what it wants to be. For all its bluster about creativity and innovation, the restaurant seems content to repackage decades-old trends at a high price point with uneven execution. It doesn't have a point of view, just an ego. A reminder, I guess, to PR types. If you're going to come out swinging, you'd better have the goods. Society started brunch service last month, and the cheery patio and prime crossroads location are likely to keep attracting new diners. The restaurant's going to need a stronger sense of purpose and progress to keep them coming back. At least, that's my contention. Really, my hope. I hope diners want more than lava cakes and dynamite rolls. Kansas City's culinary scene has so much more to offer. But restaurants are business, after all, and they're ultimately going to give us what we ask for. We live in a society. And now, ladies and gentlemen, as per always, it is time for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spacek, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. I fell in love with alt-rock-influenced R&B musician Stefan Singleton when he dropped Sis Side A last year, and I got to do a deep-dive interview into his creative process and musical background. And I've only gotten more and more thrilled with each successive single Stefan has dropped in the intervening year. Stefan's latest, The King's Gambit, is a masterful combination of the musician's alt-rock listening habits, shimmering R&B, and a brilliant spoken word middle, which is heartbreakingly confessionally honest. While it's about a boy, it could also apply to Singleton's approach to his music over the last couple of years. As he wrote on Facebook ahead of the single's release, quote, This is my art. Art is my life, and it's the only thing that makes me feel like I have a purpose here some days. You can hear all of that in this new music. I've put my whole heart, all of my money, and life into this work, more than at any other time in my life so far, end quote. Stefan performs live at Lemonade Park on Saturday, August 28th, along with Lee Walter Redding and the Nathan Corsi Band. You can snag tickets at LemonadeParkKC.com, and Stefan's music is on most streaming services, where you can find his excellent entire back catalog. Here's The King's Gambit. Down to earth, but you hug me and the 
Thank you, Nick. Really appreciate that one. Uh, today we have Carolyn Glenn Brewer, uh, who is talking to us about her book, Beneath Missouri Skies, Pat Metheny in Kansas City, 1964 through 1972. Uh, so uh, this is about a very famous jazz musician and a very short period of his career. He is still around now. Uh, he is still doing innovative things. Uh, and and this is the deepest dive anyone has into his career. And we talk about why she chose him and why she chose this very slender period of his very early career to talk about. It's a fascinating interview. Here we go. Carolyn, welcome to the show. Would you introduce yourself to the audience? I'm Carolyn Glenn Brewer. I've recently written a book called Beneath Missouri Skies about Pat Metheny's teenage years in Lee Summit, Missouri and the Kansas City area. That's where he first started playing and it's about the people who helped him get a footing in the jazz scene here so that he could catapult to the rest of the world. So let's talk about you. Where are you from? <laughs> I'm from Kansas City. I've lived here well, all my life. Um, yeah, I've lived here all my life. Um, I'm a retired band director, grade school and middle school band director. Uh, I've written um, three other books uh, besides this one. One is called Changing the Tune, which is about the Kansas City Women's Jazz Festival. And the other two are about the Ruskin Heights tornado. <laughs> one from the perspective of those who went through it and the Next one was from the perspective of those of us who were children at the time. I thought you were about to say one was from the perspective of the tornado, and I was like, "Wow, that is." <laughs> well, that, that is, was pretty I'm, much I'm buying that now. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah. uh, to to lay the groundwork here, Kansas City, big jazz city. Um, a, a question that I've I've been asked by younger people. I I'm a recent transfer to the city, and I. I think I have an answer to this question, uh, but my answer I always feel like is uh, insufficient. How would you define Kansas City jazz? <laughs> wow, well, that's a pretty broad topic. And of course there's been a uh, hundred years now or more of-, of it, It's like getting asked the question, how do you summarize Kansas City barbecue? Which I think right. I can do better it's now. Well, uh, that okay. one I can kind of pin down ingredients. Jazz is broad enough that I'm like, I don't, I know that we have a particular sound. I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> well, if, if um, somebody had asked me about barbecue, I would say try it all. So I guess I'll say the same thing <laughs> about jazz. Um, you know, we've got, uh, of course, our, our early history is, is what people know about the most, but through the, um, Pretty much by the end of World War II, there were a lot of jazz musicians who did participate in that earlier swing era and the earlier Kansas City uh, scene who had gone away to other cities or were in the service and then came back. So there was a lot of really excellent players here during the 50s and 60s who um, maybe got another job and played on the weekends or taught or worked in recording studios or did other music related things, ran music stores, um, but weren't necessarily full-time professional musicians, although there were some of those too. So when the baby boomer generation came up of playing, they had the benefit of all these people uh, to mentor with, to go listen to, to talk to, to get lessons from, to play with at jam sessions in various places. And Pat was certainly one of those he um, figured out real quick who the, the players that he wanted to play with and, and 
you know, he was so amazing at such a young age that those older players were very willing to play with him. And Pat also, every situation he was in, he wanted to learn from. So he um, was very eager to, to learn whatever they could teach him, which of course made them more anxious to teach him. So <clears throat> it, it was a very rich period of history, but in Kansas City, but it gets overlooked somewhat because it wasn't quite as flashy as some of the other ones. Uh, but there were just excellent players around. Now, with that in mind, um, I, I guess my first question was like, why did you settle on an entire book about Pat? What is it that you think <laughs> that like, it, what, what, what makes him worthy and I suppose fascinating enough for you to be like, I would like to dedicate several hundred pages to this <laughs> one musician? <laughs> Well, there were a number of reasons. First of all, of course, he has an incredible following. He's won 20 Grammys in 10 different categories, and he's very well known all over the world. He's kind of Kansas City's success story when it comes to uh, jazz musicians. And, and of, uh, of this period, you mean, right? <laughs> right, right, definitely. Um, and more pointedly, I was having a conversation with guitarist Rod Fleeman, actually, and, and he said, you know, we, we were talking about a whole lot of different things, but he was telling some Pat stories. Um, and he called later on, called later that evening, and he said, you know, have you noticed how when all of the Kansas City musicians of a certain age get together and start reminiscing or talking about, you know, their early careers, we always work our way back to the Pat stories. The, they either have stories <laughs> of first hearing him or playing with him or, you know, they, any, any kind of connections that they have. With we always end up talking about Pat. Um, but, uh, that rings, uh, uh, in the last week, uh, the, uh, the director Edgar Wright released his uh, documentary film on the Sparks Brothers. Uh, and there is a quote very early in that from Beck about how Anytime you get together with other musicians on a bus, the conversation eventually turns right. to the band Sparks. And so the tagline <laughs> on the movie is your favorite band's favorite band that you probably don't know. And I was like, that's such an incredible line. And so I love that Pat has that same sort of thing. If you get people in a room, eventually the conversation turns towards him, I guess. Right. Yeah, it always has. Well, but you know, when it always has in the past, everybody thought, well, you know, we'll just keep, we'll just hang on to our, our stories. But as time marches on, as Rod reminded me, those stories need to be written down. Those stories need to be preserved. So I approached Pat about it and he was a little reluctant not to have that documented, but he didn't want it to all be about him, uh, which is very typical of Pat. If you'll notice his picture isn't on the cover of any of his albums and that's for a reason. He wants it to be about the music. You know, of course, yes, it's the Pat Metheny group or whatever configuration he's working with at the time, but he doesn't want the story to get bogged down in other things. He wants it to always be about the music. Which um, I feel like was, is a very odd choice. I was looking at that and I was like, you know, I just associate all jazz albums with the main musician being on the mm -hmm. cover. Like they're not known for doing cover art that's, that's that far removed. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, Miles Davis is always on the cover of a Miles Davis right. album. So like, right. yeah, that was a really interesting choice. Yeah, so he gave me a list of the people who he would want to be included in this, the people that he wanted to, to kind of honor and almost pay homage to in some cases. 
And that's kind of what my idea was to begin with. So I was very anxious to do it that way. Um, so he, he was, consult, I was consulting with him and interviewing him through the whole process so that I was sure that I was doing it the way that he would want it done. Um, but basically in answer to your question, it's just because he, he is so well known and uh, you know has so many albums and so many Grammys and so many fans. He has, there are five Facebook pages devoted to him, <laughs> none of which he has anything to do with, but they're all fan pages. So he sounds like uh, the kind of guy that would be horrified to actually pop in and, and read it. Yes. Not that not not for the bad <laughs> comments, but just to see the overwhelming support and fandom. I think you're right. And even though he has spent a lot of time in the past um, talking about the people he played with in Kansas City and um, gives Kansas City the jazz scene and, and his mentors and teachers credit for starting him on the path that, that he has done very, very well on. Um, yeah, he hasn't, there wasn't any comprehensive collection of those stories. You know, it, it, you know for instance, he, he has named a lot of his tunes after either people or places around Kansas City and even had a band, the Unity Band. Uh, the first Unity Band was in his hometown of Lee Summit at, at uh, Unity Village, which is also another tune that, that he has on, a very, on his very first album. Um, so, he, you know, he's always made reference to his upbringing here, and I kind of wanted to make it clear where those roots were. One of the first uh, recording sessions for a jazz musician that I ever sat in on was in my hometown of Salina, Kansas, and a, uh, a producer from out of town kept insisting that the musician write and record a song while we were there called Salina because he was convinced that that would do well commercially or for the tourism bureau. And I think everyone in the room was like, that feels a little sellouty to be like, yeah, we should make a song for the tourism bureau. So I've always <laughs> had suspicions for when people name things after places, but his are certainly uh, much more specific and over a, a greater period of time. And you're, you're right, probably not the sort of thing that he's looking to commercially license. So I, I understand that a big part of, of what makes him so fascinating is that like he was, he was playing in clubs around 14 and by the time he graduated high school he was just the guitarist that people called to sit in on on everything like is right. is there something about like that certainly feels young for a jazz musician is there is there something really interesting to you about like that sort of wunderkind uh rise to prominence in a scene that like isn't known for being super welcoming to outsiders well yes and and of course the the whole deal was that as soon as Pat played, everybody wanted him to play with him. I mean, he started playing in pizza parlors after school when he was in high school. I mean, most of what, in fact, the entire book after he's out of grade school is from his high school years. I, I end it when he goes off to Miami to college. Um, so this is all during the time period that he was in high school or younger. Um, and yes, that is, that's pretty young, but there was an interesting thing happening here. Um, this was before schools, high schools, or even most colleges had jazz band programs. There were, there were maybe two or three in the Kansas City area in high schools that had a jazz band program, but mostly kids had to do it on their own. And they would gravitate to one another through going to concerts or you know, various, various avenues. 
uh, band camps, things like that, um, where they would meet somebody and then get together and play. So they were all teaching each other at the same time. They were all learning together. And uh, my brother was one that did that with Pat. So he knew him really early on. So he was, Pat was my, my little brother's friend for a while before I even heard him play, you know. So of course I didn't take him seriously because he was, <laughs> he was a little kid. Right. Uh, I knew I knew his older brother Mike because we had gone to band camps and and uh, all city bands and things like that. And I actually played in the Unity Band when Mike was the trumpet soloist there. So I had a connection with the family, but I didn't think too much of Pat until I heard him much later, and um, much later being a couple of years. And of course, you know he was on a completely different plane. But I think one thing that got people's <laughs> attention to begin with was that he could sound exactly like Wes Montgomery. And that was in a time when Wes Montgomery was really popular and not just in the jazz world, but in the pop world. So um, that, that got people's attention right away. But it wasn't long before some of his Kansas City mentors, musical mentors were telling him, you know, you really need to develop your own style. You know, quit playing like West. That's been done. Do something else. <laughs> and Pat's very, very adamant about playing of his time. You know, he's not interested in going back and revisiting the swing era. You know, he he wants to develop his own style, his own sound that is of the time that he started playing and has evolved from there. I mean, he's he's changed that over the years, over the decades. But it's always been very important to him that he reflect the time and part of that started from those Kansas City mentors saying quit sounding like Wes you need to sound like Pat. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to imagine the experience of having known somebody as being a friend of my little sister and thinking like that's just my little sister's friend and then uh, several decades later writing 300 pages of a book <laughs> just about them. That's, yeah that's a little I, weird. <laughs> I don't think there's any, I, it, that certainly must have come as a surprise. So you you brought up how his sound, uh, he he was a sound alike for Montgomery and, and I suppose that this ties into uh, the first question that popped into my head when I got a press release with the cover of your book, uh, which is the question of of everyone in the KC jazz scene, why write about a white teenager? Hmm. Well, there again, just because of his popularity and because his story, while, while maybe the most dominant one of our generation of that time, um, it tied into a whole lot of other stories. And um, some of those were black musicians, some of them were older musicians, uh, unfortunately, there weren't many women musicians that his time period encompassed, but um, he, he, would, he would sneak out of his house at night as a teenager and drive over to um, after hours clubs that were in Kansas City, Kansas to, to play with um, um, uh, you know, people that, that he wouldn't normally get to play with, uh, mostly organ players. Uh, and, and many of them were black. And it, it was just, um, to, to Pat, there was no color. You know, it was right. just music. And oh, the, the, the Musicians Foundation uh, famously had a, a Saturday night jam through all of this time. And he would always go down there and play and pick brains and ask for advice and listen, mostly listen. 
and play, you know, and, and try to get the most he could out of that. And, and he formed relationships with those musicians. They came to respect him because he was so respectful of them and was so anxious to learn everything that they, they could teach him. Seems like that's probably easier with somebody that has no ego about this and is just there wanting to support right. other people right. that, that right. tracks. Um, so the New Yorker recently referred to him as possibly the most influential jazz guitarist of the past five decades. Um, what is his what is his lineage? What is what what is it that he has passed down that that 50 years of jazz musicians are are still using or trying to copy? What is it that he changed about the landscape of jazz? <laughs> well, he changed the sound for one thing. It's a completely different guitar sound. Uh, and his, his chordal choices, his, his, his encompassing all different styles of music. Um, he's as comfortable uh, playing something with some country overtones as he is with the classical guitar. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's really brought it all to the surface and, and, and put it together. Now, there's a lot more scholarly writers than me who will address all of his, you know, his career after he left Kansas City. But I think just in general, he, he has done a remarkable job of touching so many different people from so many different countries. And in fact, um, there was a, an article in, well, I think it was Downbeat, just the last month or so um, about the way that his music was soothing and comforting during the pandemic where people couldn't go out and hear live music or you know connect with the, the entertainment part of their world so people would listen to um, to, to Pat's records and, and there was a, a calming sense to them or a jubilant sense to them you know it, it's music is happy for him. I mean, and that's not to say all of his music is happy. But it's but, the blues. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. But but you know, he he always has that that love of the melody at the base of it all. And I think people respond to that and um, you know, that is has put him in good stead for 50 years and and counting. So um, you know, there's there's a lot of people who could could probably answer that question better and, and would be able to uh, get down to the, to the minutia of it all. But I think just in general, it, it makes people feel good. Uh, what is the full title of your book and where can people find it? <laughs> it's called Beneath Missouri Skies, which is a takeoff on uh, Beyond Missouri Skies, one of his albums. Um, Beneath Missouri Skies, Pat Metheny in Kansas City, 1964 to 1972. And it can be purchased pretty much all the usual places. <clears throat> Barnes and Noble, uh, Amazon, Rainy Day Books has it on their um, website. I'm not sure that a lot of, I think a lot of the bookstores that carry it only carry it online because of uh, the circumstances of being in stores. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's... Um, it's, it's always available at my website, carolynglenbrewer.com. Um, so generally, anywhere you would go to find books, it's there. Thank you so much for talking to me. I wish you well thank with you. the book. Uh, and thanks for uh, teaching me so much about Pat. <laughs> hey, well, thank you. All right. Have yourself a wonderful day. Thanks. You too. 
And that has been the Streetwise Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in and listening this week. Uh, thank you for supporting the pitch, as per always. We have a membership drive going, as we do constantly, every day, all of the time. If you ever want to sign up for that, there are options on our website. Uh, if you ever just want to throw us a couple of bucks to keep the lights on, have at it as well. Uh, we appreciate you reading the thepitchkc.com, where we are doing innovative fun, cool, dark stuff each and every day, just trying to serve our community the best that we can. Thank you for listening to this. Thank you for all the emails you send in. If you have a story that you think we should be tackling, brock at thepitchkc.com. That email is brock at thepitchkc.com. Love hearing from you. Love feedback. Love to know what we can be doing better or what's sitting out there in the darkness that we should be taking a deeper dive into. Anyway, take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Pitch in and we'll make it through. Thank you so very much. Bye, bye, bye. This was a production of the Pitch Podcast Network. The Pitch is Kansas City's independent source for news and culture. Check out thepitchkc.com to see more podcasts from us, including information for how to subscribe to the Pitch or become a sustaining member. Story ideas or feedback? Write to tips at thepitchkc.com. Pitch in and we'll make it through.